Well, I counted up the uh, last time I was able to spend Father's Day with uh, both daughters at the same time it was 16 years ago. And uh, that afternoon, I did share with them how being a dad, becoming a father, um, changed my perspective on life. That uh, when our first daughter was born, I was overwhelmed with the responsibility. Because all of a sudden I realized, well, I have to keep a job now. I have to have insurance. No more skydiving. No more mixed martial arts. I have to save money for diapers instead of donuts. That was the biggest challenge there. I need to come home from work at a decent hour so I can help my wife. And Amy, well, she was also overwhelmed. Her biggest concern, you'd never guess this, but her biggest concern of becoming a mom was... Will I remember to feed the children? <laughs> and that's because she was never much of an eater. I taught her how to be an eater really, really quickly, but, she never, but somehow we made it through. And both our daughters are alive and well-fed and out of my house. <laughs> Parenthood is a reality that transforms your approach to life. And there is another significant one, and that is the return of Jesus. Now, you might not think about it that way. You might wonder, well, how does the return of Christ have any connection with my everyday life? Well, if the Bible is true, and the eyewitness testimony and evidence is believed, Jesus was tortured, executed on the cross, and three days later came alive again. And that matters because he was this, God's perfect son, who had no sin of his own, but took our sin upon himself and died the death we should have died, so that all who trust in him are set free from the power of sin and the fear of death. If the Bible is true, and I know it is, and the eyewitness testimony and evidence is to be believed, and I believe it is, three days after his murder, Jesus came alive again. And his resurrection is the basis of our faith. Now the living Jesus left this earth with the promise to return. Here are some of those promises. He said, I will come back and take you to be with me. He said, the Son of Man will return when least expected. He said, keep watch. You don't know the day or the hour. He said, you will see me coming back on the clouds of heaven. Those are just some of the promises Jesus made about his return. How much do you think about that return? And what difference does it make in your life? And I ask this knowing that we're not all alike. We're not all in the same place. Every week we have people in our services who probably don't believe in Jesus much at all. Well, we're glad you're here. We have others attending who may believe but struggle with their doubts. And we're thankful that you're here. And there are many of you who come with joy and wonder because you've experienced the saving power of the good news of Jesus. And in spite of the problems or the pain in your life, you are here to worship. And we are thrilled to be together today. Wherever you are on that continuum of faith, the return of Christ matters. It should influence your decisions and your interactions and your plans and your responses every day. So how does the anticipation of the second coming change things? Well, we're going to see that as we finish our series here in 1 Thessalonians. The Apostle Paul shared the good news of Jesus in this Greek city of Thessalonica. Many believed the church was planted, and then an angry mob came after Paul, and he had to run for his life. A few weeks later... Paul wrote this letter we call 1 Thessalonians to encourage this young church 
And in every chapter, he emphasizes the return of Christ. And now we come here to the end of the letter, and we have a laundry list of commands. There are, in fact, 17 separate instructions in these few verses. And they might seem disconnected. I don't believe they're disconnected at all. Uh, God's uh, people are being told how to anticipate Christ's return and how it should transform their attitude. In fact, I would categorize these in three areas. That it should transform your attitude toward leadership, toward relationships, and toward worship. And that's how all these 17 separate instructions are connected together. So let's uh, deal with each of these. First of all, it should transform your perspective on leadership. Verse 12. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to respect those who work hard among you, who are over you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. Now, who is Paul talking about? Who do we need to respect, hold in high regard, live in peace with? Our spiritual leaders. Who qualifies in that? Well, there are three markers in this verse. Those who work hard, that is, those who labor for your spiritual well-being to help you grow in Christ. Those who are over you, that is, those who have some position of responsibility in your spiritual life. And those who admonish you, those who counsel, warn, instruct you about spiritual things. And you might immediately think of pastors, but certainly any person who takes part in your spiritual care is included here. Bible study teacher, class facilitator, counselor, small group leader, board member, many, many different people. Anyone who works hard among you in carrying out spiritual responsibilities is in this category and says to respect them. That word translated respect means to recognize them. And as pastor, I, I have people who are over me in the Lord, surely, as a, even though I'm the senior pastor, which used to mean I was just the first. Now I'm, I'm the old pastor. But anyway, uh, <laughs> I have uh, people who are over me. Like the, As a group, the, the trustees are, have authority over me. If they say, stop doing this or start doing that, well, I pay attention to that. And also, I have spiritual mentors who speak into my life. And when they do, I listen. When I pastored a church of thousands of people, I had even more people over me. Uh, not only the elder board and the administrative board, but denominational leaders. And I remember when the bishop called my cell phone, texted me, and sent five emails all in one day. Uh, even though I was busy, I answered every single one of them immediately. Because I, I hold him, still do, hold him in high regard in love. Now, if you know Jesus, there are those who are over you in the Lord. Do you recognize them? Do you think highly of them with affection? Do you get along? If you refuse to value those who are over you in the Lord, you aren't prepared for Christ to return. See, giving loving respect to sincere spiritual leaders, is, is that, that's what we need to do because Jesus is returning. The Barna Research Group found that last year, Last year, 42% of all pastors considered quitting the ministry permanently. That's a lot. That's a lot. And most of them said it was because of the immense stress of the job. And that's just pastors. That doesn't count lay leaders who drop out because of discouragement or exhaustion. And maybe you don't like your spiritual leaders. Please don't tell me. Uh, maybe, maybe you don't agree with them. Uh, be careful. Don't simply become critical. 
There are biblical ways if spiritual leaders are in sin or in error to approach that. And if the issue isn't serious enough for that, then let it go. Don't allow that to get in the way of more important things. Jesus is coming back. And if you are preparing for him, it's going to transform your attitude toward spiritual leadership. The second area is relationships. Verse 14. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle... Encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always try to be kind to each other and to everyone else. So Paul turns his attention from those over us in leadership to those who are around us in fellowship. And if you know Jesus, there better be some people around you. If you claim to know, follow Christ, and you can't identify a community a web of spiritual relationships, then something's lacking in your spiritual life. Uh, you, you need to walk through life closely with a few others with whom you can share joys and sorrows. The people in your small group, your Bible study class, your neighborhood gathering of godly friends. Uh, it is about these people that Paul urges us. And that's a strong word, that word for urge. He's calling us out about relationships and he begs us, as the people of God, to take action in the lives of those around us. And he mentions three groups, the idle, the timid, and the weak. What about them? Well, first of all, he says, warn the idle. Why? Because they're out of step. The word idle refers to being disorderly, disruptive, out of step with the group. How many of you were in a marching band at some point in your life? Okay, there's a lot of you. Um, yeah. Going every holiday to be in a parade when you're in high school, I hate a parade now. So <laughs> every halftime show um, for the football. So yeah, I didn't enjoy it. Every person has to be in sync, in step, in time. And if not, it messes up everything. So what about those around you who are out of step? Well, they might be shirking responsibility as a husband. They, they might be less than ethical at work. They might say something that's hurtful, offensive, ignorant. What do you do? Paul says, warn them. And those you warn might say, well, don't judge me. Well, when I was in band and everybody did a countermarch left and I did a countermarch right and knocked over the drum section, <laughs> the band director had a few words for me. That wasn't judgment, that was correction, that was warning. So when someone in your circle of influence is constantly critical, complaining, disruptive, warn them to get back in line. Uh, when your married buddy is paying too much attention to another woman, warn him to get in step. When your friend is angry and refuses to forgive, warn her. When someone in your group poisons the atmosphere, warn him. Jesus is coming. What else? The other group is encourage the timid. Why? Because they feel defeated. Those who are sad, fearful, hesitant, disheartened, lacking confidence, they don't need a warning. They need a pep talk. They need a kind word. They need a cheerleader. And you as the people of God are to encourage them. So when someone in your circle wants to give up, feels overwhelmed, is paralyzed by insecurity, you need to encourage them. And some of us aren't good at that. Some of us warn everybody. We warn the timid. Stop feeling sorry for yourself. Get a grip. Grow up. And that's not what we're supposed to do. Uh, or we ignore their struggle and pretend not to notice. 
But those who live in fear, those who feel insecure, uncertain, need affirmation. They need a word of praise. They need a kind smile. And the purpose is not to help them feel better about being timid, but to help free them from the paralysis of insecurity. This Jesus is coming, so be ready by encouraging. And then that group, the weak, support the weak. Why? Because they're low in strength. The weakness can be a temptation to sin. It can be physical sickness. It can be emotional exhaustion. Whatever the weakness those in your circle of relationships are facing, support them. And that, that word for support, anatexomai, is, means to hold on firmly, to help this one who can't stand on his own or her own. Don't scold them, but help them. And one of the weaknesses of the Thessalonian church was sexual self-control. So when your brother or sister struggles with pornography or infidelity or promiscuity, help them overcome. Loyally stand with them. And when someone in your group is ill, surround them with support. When someone in your circle falters, step in and say, lean on me. I'll support you through this tough time. Now take grief, for example. Uh, we were reminded a couple of weeks ago that grief is not a sin. Grief is normal. It's necessary for a time. And so when someone is grieving, we come around them. We help them. And the purpose is to help them get through this time of weakness to a time of strength. And when someone struggles with temptation, you help them, not by excusing their weaknesses, but by helping them to avoid sin. Jesus is coming. So, all right, that's fine. But what about when the idle don't listen to the warning? What happens when the timid refuse to be encouraged? What about when the weak don't want any help? What then? Well, notice the next phrase there. Be patient with everyone. You hear about the woman who went to a new dentist, and as he began to work on her, she looked at the diploma on the wall and saw his name, and she thought, goodness, could this gray-haired, wrinkled old man be the handsome boy I had a crush on in high school all those years ago? And she said, excuse me, did, did you go to Morgan Park High School? He said, I did. She said, well, what year did you graduate? 1978. She said, you were in my class. And he looked at her closely and he said, what did you teach? <laughs> and that's why Paul urges us to be patient and kind and not to get even with people who are rude because Jesus is coming. The return of Christ should transform our attitude about relationships. And then third, it should transform our attitude about worship. Verse 16. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the spirit, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all, hold on to the good, reject every kind of evil. And why do I say this is about worship? Because all the verbs here are plural. These are things we practice collectively, as a group, when we gather. These five characteristics should describe corporate worship. They're not the only characteristics, but there are five mentioned here, because Jesus is coming. So let's look at them. First of all, be joyful. Worship that is joyful. He says, rejoice always. According to John Stott, this is an invitation to joyful worship among the people of God. And so no matter what your circumstances... Come join me in praising God, enjoying his presence, delighting in his truth. When we stop finding joy in God, we're missing the mark. 
It means then that life has distracted us, that our faith is weak, that our focus has shifted uh, from the glory of God in Christ to other things. And uh, That doesn't mean if we're joyful that our worship lacks reverence, awe, respect. Certainly not. Our God is a consuming fire. Uh, but b- because of all he's done for us in Christ, we should be joyful always. I, I want to quote uh, a sentence from an email I got recently. Because it says something that I've heard a number of times since I've come here, okay? Quote, The service today was so good, it was all I could do to keep my mouth shut, unquote. (laughs) People, let the joy out, for heaven's sakes. I see people get excited about football and about all kinds of other things. How about Jesus, all right? How about Jesus, our Savior? Because Jesus is coming, and one way to be ready is to worship with joy. Prayerful. Worship that's prayerful. Pray continually. He says, we have times of prayer and worship. We recite the Lord's Prayer together. I often pray as I'm singing. Lord, thank you for the truth of this song. I pray when I hear Scripture being read. Lord, help me apply this. I pray when I hear others praying. Lord, I agree with that prayer. And such prayer, when God's people gather, is crucial to worship. Jesus encouraged his disciples that instead of letting their hearts be weighed down with anxiety and distraction, they should pray. He said in Luke 21, 36, Be always watchful and prayerful that you may be able to stand when the Son of Man comes. So in other words, Jesus is coming. And so one way to be ready is to pray. Third, worship that is thankful. He says, give thanks in all circumstances. It's not that we have to thank God for every circumstance, but we're to thank him in it. The the Christian has something that remains, no matter how great the grief, or how dark the tragedy, or how deep the loss. There is salvation through Christ and the love of God from which nothing can separate us. Not bankruptcy, not cancer, not depression, or divorce, or addiction, or unemployment, or temptation, or abandonment, not even death itself can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So gratitude should characterize our worship at all times. Today we celebrated the Lord's table, the Eucharist, which means thanksgiving, with bread and cup representing the body and blood of the Lord. It symbolizes the crushing death of the Son of God, yet we give thanks, thanksgiving. Third, fourth, spiritual. It says don't put out the Spirit's fire. Uh, Those are serious words. And the warning here is not really about me quenching my response to the Spirit as much as it is about me not throwing water on somebody else. The the Spirit of God is among us. He's at work. He's convicting some of sin. He's moving someone else to obedience. He's communicating fresh insights. And when that's happening, be careful that you and I don't extinguish what the Spirit is doing with a nasty look or a negative word or a dismissive attitude. Apparently, the Thessalonians were experiencing a lot of phony prophecies, that they had endured people spouting all kinds of nonsense, and they did not even have uh, YouTube and TikTok and all those other ways that nonsense is being spread today in prophecy. And they were saying these words were from God, and they were tired of it, and they may have put up a sign, no prophecies in the sanctuary, and Paul reminded them not to limit God's work. And I, too, have encountered many people who mistakenly felt they had a message from God. And I've had prophecies spoken over me that were false. 
And so I have to fight against my natural inclination to dismiss such things out of hand and to listen, to be sensitive to the Spirit. And that brings us to the fifth one, and that is careful. Worship that is careful. He says, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. So immediately after warning not to look down on prophecies, Paul says, test everything. When someone claims to have a message from God, we should neither automatically reject it or, nor automatically accept it. And frankly, churches tend to go to extremes, and I know some on both sides. They either dismiss everything or allow everything, and neither is right. We must discern, is this message from God or not? How do we do that? Now, several times since I've been here, numerous times actually, people in the church have received strange emails that seem to come from me. They say things like, I need you to buy some gift cards. How can you tell if such an email is legitimate? Well, first of all, check the grammar. If there are some typos, it's not from me. Check the address. If it doesn't say twptx.org, it's not from me. Check the request. If it's about getting gift cards, it's not from me. You can also test prophecy. How do you do that? Well, you ask, does it match up with Scripture? Second, does it recognize Jesus as the Son of God and Savior of the world? Third, does it build up the church? Fourth, does it occur in a decent and orderly way? And frankly, these are not just good tests for prophecies. These are good tests for songs. These are good tests for sermons. And when you don't have to break all four. You break any one of these, and this is not something that you should accept. So you have a song that doesn't fulfill all four of these, we shouldn't be singing it in church. If there's a sermon that doesn't fulfill the... Well, we shouldn't be hearing that. It needs to be rebuked and rejected, and certainly with prophecy. And so, therefore, Paul ends that section by saying, treasure what's true and throw away what's false. So these are the qualities that should be true of our worship. Joyful, prayerful, thankful, spiritual, careful. Why? Because Jesus is returning. Now, that's an awful lot of challenge packed into these few verses. And the question is, Can you transform how you view leadership, how you deal with relationships, how you approach worship? Can you do it? And the answer is no. Not on your own. There's no way that you can feel respect to spiritual leaders all the time because they're going to do things that you disagree with or don't like. There's no way you can respond to all your relationships properly every time, especially with the idle, the timid, the weak. There's no way that you can worship joyfully, prayerfully, thankfully, spiritually, carefully all the time. So I'll tell you, if I come in on a Sunday morning and find a letter on my desk or in my mailbox, I do not open it. If someone hands me a note before service or between services, I do not read it. Well, why? Well, I'm a worship leader for the next few hours. I have to preach three sermons over those next few hours. And I don't want to take the chance that in that letter or in that note is some nasty criticism or some unhelpful bit of advice or some backhanded compliment that's going to dampen my joy in Thanksgiving before I help to lead God's people in worship. And so I don't take that chance. I open it later. But things do slip through. Not everybody who has an unhelpful bit of advice writes it. Sometimes they just tell you. (laughs) 
And so I need to be careful, as do you, because our approach to leadership and relationships and worship can't be perfect. We desperately need this closing prayer. That's why it's here. Verse 23, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. See, in your own strength, you can't possibly be ready for Christ's return, nor can I. But God will accomplish in you what you cannot do yourself. God will empower you to be the person he called you to be by the power of his spirit. He will transform your attitude as you prepare for Jesus to return. So how can you respect those who are over you in the Lord? The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. How can you warn the idle, encourage the timid, help the weak, and be patient with everyone? The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. How can you worship with joy and in truth? The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Andrew Forsoffel uh, walked across the United States of America from east to west, 4,000 miles. I would love to have done that. I don't think I could make it now, but that was, that's a what a thing. And along the way, he interviewed people. The favorite interview I have of all those that he interviewed was in Alabama with Emma Lou Daly. And uh, here was her philosophy of life, by the way. Here she is with, with Andrew. She said, give your heart to Jesus and always do what's right. Isn't that a great philosophy of life? Well... He said, what do you think about those people who are so mean and hateful? Here's what she said. They ain't looking for a great day. I'm looking for a great day. When I see my Jesus face to face, you don't do evil for evil. They hate y'all. Y'all love them. Wow. When Andrew asked, was it ever hard to love thy neighbor as thyself? Andrew was Stuck in the King James there. She said, yes, it was hard. And then she sang Amazing Grace. And Emma has since gone on to that great day. That's her obituary picture there. And she's somebody I want to meet in heaven. If your trust is in Christ, here's how you know you're ready for that. Because in light of that great day, respect those over you. Care for those around you. Worship the Savior returning for you. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. God's people, this is the call to transform our attitude because Jesus is coming, and he's coming soon. Thanks be to God. Would you stand and let me pray over you? Now may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Amen.